0: please visit our website at reformedholytrinity.org. Those words by Jeremiah were reminiscent of the words that were spoke many years later by Martin Luther as he stood at trial before the Diet of Worms. And he said, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. Now he had to take a couple days to deliberate about it. But he came back with full confidence and assurance to declare that he was going to stand upon the word of God no matter what they did to him. And may we have that resilience once again. That's all we need today, right? Men. Men who are willing to stand up and say, here I stand, so help me God. I can do no other. God help me. Turn to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. I decided not to preach a Reformation Day-themed sermon because I think the subject matter that we are dealing with here in the book of Galatians, specifically here where we're at now in Galatians chapter 6, to be an important part of um, Reformation discussion. Specifically, we're talking about the ministry of reconciliation. This is part three of our series on that topic as we have been preaching through the book of Galatians. And now, as we are here in Galatians chapter 6, we have started looking at this topic, the ministry of reconciliation. Let's begin reading in verse number 1, where Paul, writing to the churches of Galatia, says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass... You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's all we're going to read this morning. Now we are dealing with uh, a, a bigger uh, the small portion here in the beginning of a bigger portion here through verses 10. Uh, But I'm not going to read the whole passage this morning, just stop there in verses 1 and 2, as we are considering this ministry of reconciliation. And you can see that part of this ministry of reconciliation is the bearing of one another's burdens. And so here this subject, um, we're taking some time to consider this subject. And it may come as a surprise that this is the ministry of the church. The ministry of reconciliation It's what the church is all about. It is the essence of who we are is reconciliation. And it is reconciliation to God to reconcile all things in heaven and earth back to God. Isn't that what God is doing? He's making a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation with new men. Just as he made Adam out of the dust of the earth, so too he is making a new man in Christ out of all the peoples of the earth. And we have this duty to be reconciled to God and man. And it's not only an individual duty, but it is also a corporate duty. Consider these passages. And the well is deep here, and we'll have to move quickly through them. And so you might want to jot them down because the uh, jot these passages down to take home with you so you can look them up. Uh, These passages will be instrumental over the next few weeks. In Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24, in Daniel's prophecy concerning the coming of the Messiah. It is declared, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. This was a prophecy in, re- in reference to Jesus Christ, which, by the way, has been fulfilled because Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophecy. And we have several indications, but notice one of the things listed in these 70 weeks that were to be determined that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ was that the Messiah would come to make reconciliation for iniquity. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 11, Paul writes, and not only that, but we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have now received the reconciliation The 70 weeks isn't for something in the future. It's something that's already happened. It's something that's already been fulfilled. And that's why we have been reconciled back to God. But notice he says now we have received the reconciliation. In Romans chapter 5, Paul also says that when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son and much more. Having been reconciled, we shall also be saved by his life. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, talking about Jesus, and by him to reconcile all things. (laughs) I'm not too bright. I'm from the sticks of Brown County, and (laughs) I was not um, educated in the ivory towers, but I can understand the word all. It means everything. And so the Bible says that through Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ came to reconcile all things to himself. And then it goes on, just in case for people like myself, who may not be the sharpest tool in this shed. It goes on to say, and to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So all things in heaven and all things on earth. Jesus came to reconcile it all to himself, which is why the declaration is that Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That is the gospel declaration, by the way, that he is a king. And so he came to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith. Grounded and steadfast. And are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2. Basically declares very similar things. We're not going to take the time uh, to read that passage. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Same thing. Talking about making all things new. In subjection to Jesus Christ. And then those passages talk about our reconciliation to God and the reconciliation of the whole world. But but there's also this aspect of reconciliation that we're to have one with another. So we're to be reconciled to God. There's this ministry of reconciliation to cause us to be reconciled to God, but there's also this ministry of reconciliation where we are to be reconciled one with another because now we are His body. And we're to be uh, uh, reconciled together as the body of christ and that's why jesus said talking about when you bring your offering when you bring your sacrifice when you bring your gift to the altar he says and there you remember that your brother has something against you so there's ought between your brother there's something that has separated fellowship between you and your brother he says leave your gift there before the altar and go your way first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift see what was the purpose of the gift It was to be reconciled. The gift's meaningless without reconciliation. As a matter of fact, this reconciliation goes so far as to where we are told as Christians, one with another, even in our own marriages, even if we are married to an unbeliever, we are told that we are to be reconciled. You see... Christianity is about reconciliation. The Bible is all about wayward man's reconciliation to God in the new creation through Jesus Christ. And as a matter of fact, there is only reconciliation to God and man in Jesus Christ. And as hard as many may try, there is no reconciliation outside of Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. This is the reason why the exclusiveness of the Christian message is so important. Now, people will argue and fuss and fight. But, listen, they've been at it now for a good many decades in Western civilization. And look what they've done with it. So, I don't know why we're so timid. Because Jesus is the, only, is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way. So there is no hope in this world. There is no hope for our country. There is no hope for civilization outside of Christ. So we should not be timid about this message. Because Jesus is actually reconciling all things to himself. Whether it's in heaven or on earth. And we are supposed to be engaged in that ministry of reconciliation. So the last two weeks, we have considered Paul's communion within the churches of Galatia in the midst of their conflict. Notice, brethren, if a man be overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So we understand that there's some kind of conflict going on. And if you remember, as we have... Uh, worked our way through the first five chapters of this uh, letter by Paul to the churches of Galatia, that it has been nothing but conflict, right? I mean, this book is nothing but conflict. As a matter of fact, the whole New Testament's nothing but conflict. As a matter of fact, the whole Old Testament is nothing but conflict. As a matter of fact, all of life is conflict. We want to say, Peace, peace. But there is no peace, saith my God to the wicked. But the last two weeks, we have considered Paul's communion with the churches of Galatia in the midst of their conflict. Because even though there was conflict, there was still communion. Brethren. After all the things he had said early on, he comes to this place and he calls them brethren. Don't take it personal. No hard feelings, right? That's what we say today. Don't take it personal. No hard feelings. Brethren, we're still in communion. He considers them brethren, but yet he makes a distinction between those who are in the church who are deceived and the false brethren who are doing the deceiving. Remember back in the first chapter, he talks about them being turned away and those that were influencing them to go the wrong down the wrong path. And this is true, even in chapter three, he asks who has bewitched you, who's cast a spell on you to cause you to behave this way? You ran, ran well, who hindered you from the truth? But then, in talking about the false brethren who were purposely deceiving them, he says he wishes they were accursed. He says he wishes they would emasculate themselves. Pretty strong language. So he does make a distinction here, right? And then here in our chapter, there are those in verse 1 who are overtaken in any trespass, and those in verse 13 who desire to cause them to boast in their flesh. Again, another distinction. We looked at the love of their communion and the urgency of reconciliation over the last two weeks because they are brethren. Which leads us to our next point. Yes, they were in communion. Yes, they had love one for another. And yes, Paul has an urgency for resolution. But the fact of the matter was they are in conflict. They were in conflict. There was this conflict going on. Now, we're not going to spend much time here following up and finishing our first point, which was communion in conflict. But it does need to be mentioned that there is conflict. I mean, it's like the elephant in the room nowadays. Because, you know, we live in this participation trophy kind of culture. And, you know, conflict is bad and... Can't we all just get along and things of that nature? And it's like, listen, there's conflict every step of the way. Not all conflict is bad to begin with. Matter of fact, conflict is necessary for every aspect of life. Right out of the gate, this is addressed as Paul addresses his conflict with the churches of Galatia in chapter 1 and verses 6 through 10. He mentions his former conflict with the church of Galatia. Uh, of Jesus Christ before his conversion in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, in verses 3 through 5, he mentions his conflict with false brethren in Jerusalem. Then in verses 11 through 21 of the same chapter, he speaks of his conflict with the Apostle Peter. In chapter 3, he returns to his conflict with the churches of Galatia, and by the end of the chapter, he is talking about the conflict between the children of bondage and the children of promise, the conflict between the two covenants, the conflict between the false and true church, and the conflict between the flesh and the spirit. And this leads to a fuller discussion about walking in the spirit in verse number 5. And the reason why I mention all of this is to say... That all of life, and all of the Christian life, is conflict, and we are in a conflict. Which is to say that we are at world, uh, we are at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're at war with our own nature. You can't escape it in any aspect of life. But for some reason, we believe that there should never be conflict. And while we can make a case that we are to be in conflict with the world that most might accept, we do everything possible to avoid it. And we can make a case for conflict with sin as long as this conflict is external, right? This stupid thing is causing me problems. As long as it's external. But... We will never internalize it. We may give lip service to it, but to admit that there is sin in the church and that there is sin in your heart and my heart, oh, that's a bridge too far. And yet, there is this conflict, and we pretend there is not. And there are two types of conflict, right? There's adversarial and friendly. Foe and friend, enemy and ally. And there are different applications within each distinction. Because just because it's friendly does not mean that it is not rough. But we understand the adversarial type of conflict, right? And by understanding it, what I mean is that we know it exists. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, it's possible we might... Have to go to war with Russia or something, you know, and and um, but we really have no way of conceptualizing what that means nowadays, right? Because we would try to win them over with our flowers and with our pronouns and all of our depravity, but we really don't know what conflict would be like so we know it exists and we, but we really don't have an understanding of how or why to engage in it because we first of all think that all conflict is bad and so if you think adversarial conflict is bad if you think it is bad when someone is trying to kill you that you have to use a greater force to stop them If you think that's bad, then you're probably not going to believe that there is a, uh, you're not going to see the good in friendly conflict. And this is why this soft snowflake culture has trouble with much of the Bible. We have lost the concept that we are to be overcomers in the conflict. That we we have forgotten that we are to be conquerors in these conflicts. We have forgotten that we are to fight to win, which is because we have a pansy for a God. Not the one true and the living God of the Bible. No, no, no. We We have brought in a new God. And this God that we have is a pansy. The false Jesus of today is some limp-wristed pantywaist that is not a conquering savior. He's not an authoritative lord. He is not a reigning king. Instead, he is some pot-smoking hippie who looks like he has AIDS. And as a result, we have a weak, ineffective, worthless religion in America. We don't realize... That it's going to take reconciliation. And within that topic of reconciliation. We need to understand that it is to be reconciled to God. And under his authority. We are to reconcile the world by restraining and defeating the kingdom of darkness, sin and death. We are to take this world for Jesus Christ. You see, it's not good enough to isolate yourself from the world. It's not good enough to put your head in the sand. It's not good enough to isolate yourself from sin. We are to seek the good. And we are to establish the good. And we are to fulfill what is right. Jesus went about doing good. And that is the example we are to follow. By this reconciling, it involves interpersonal reconciliation in the church. So there's a distinction. There's a reconciling of the world. And then there's this work of reconciliation within the church, which is more interpersonal. And how are we to reconcile the world is to be seen In the ministry of reconciliation in the church. So how that is conducted here. Is how it is going to be fulfilled in the world. So how it is seen in the church. and our reconciliation to God and to man. Is how it is to be fulfilled in the world. But there is this reconciliation. This work of reconciliation. We would call this friendly conflict. Right? Friendly conflict. That which is within the church. And we need to remember what Solomon wrote. He said, faithful are the wounds of a friend. We don't believe that anymore, do we? We can't even have honest conversation about anything. Because everybody gets offended. Now I understand there are categories. And there are applications for certain categories. And the way we deal with women and children should be different. But man, have we reached a point in time in history when men cannot come to one another as men and deal with each other as men? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. But yet we would rather have the deceit. You see, when Nathan came to David and he said, you are the man. Remember that? Remember, David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then worked it out in a plot to make sure that her husband Uriah was killed in a battle to cover up his sin. And Nathan came and spoke a parable to him and David got all mad and wanted to know who the transgressor was so that he could deal with him. And Nathan said, you are the man. Was Nathan being a friend or not? Nathan was being a very good friend to David. And of course, David was convicted when he heard that. And of course, even though the... Faithful are the wounds of a friend. We also know that love covers a multitude of sins. You know, David's sin did not go out throughout the land, right? Go in common knowledge because he repented. But Nathan was a faithful friend. The psalmist writes, "Let the righteous smite me, and it will be kindness; and let him reprove me, it shall be an excellent oil." Which shall not break my head, for yet my prayer also shall be in their calamities. In Hebrews chapter 12, we are told that God chastens us for our good. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent, Jesus said to the church in Revelation 3. So it is important to understand that reconciliation involves conflict. But notice, brethren, verse number one, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, if a man, this is not a statement of, of a hypothetical nature. The statement is not as if this is remotely, a remote possibility. It is a conditional participle, not just in case this unusual thing might happen. That is not what is meant by the word, if a man, though a man, is overtaken in any trespass. Or whoever is overtaken in a trespass. You see, it's a conditional participle. It's not talking about a remote possibility, but talking about when. So it provides something when this happens. And let me tell you, it happens a lot. When a man is overtaken in any trespass. The New Testament is full of examples. As a matter of fact, here in this epistle, as Paul was relating his conflict with Peter, he said that when Peter came to Antioch, he withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, remember the man who was committing sexual immorality? In that he was fornicating with his stepmom, maybe even his mother. We are a little iffy about that. I believe it was his, probably his stepmother. But he would not Repent. And so what did Paul say? Judge him, deal with him. That was a conflict in the church, right? That's conflict. But the conflict is necessary for reconciliation because then in his second letter, Paul says, listen, that man, even though we had to be sharp with him, even though we had to be rough with him, And his punishment that was inflicted upon him was severe, he says. But now, because he has returned in humility, repentance, forgive him. That's reconciliation. See, there's conflict, and then there's reconciliation. The reason why we don't have any reconciliation nowadays is because we don't have any conflict. It takes conflict to get to reconciliation. Now, sin is the cause of all conflict, right? And there are two types of sins. Ignorance and presumptuous sins. In Leviticus chapter 4, it talks about, in that whole chapter, it talks about um, sins of ignorance. And because they were sins of ignorance, they uh, could bring their sacrifice to the priest, and atonement would be made for them. It talks about any soul that sins through ignorance against any of the commands of the Lord. Notice that. Any soul that sins through ignorance against any commands of the Lord. And then it talks about the priest, if he does it. The congregation, if they do it. The ruler, if he does it. The common people, if they do it. The soul that sins through ignorance shall be atoned for. But then in Numbers chapter 15, it talks about the soul, the person that breaks the commandments presumptuously. He's to be cut off from his people. Those who sin presumptuously, what do we mean by that? To be bold, confident to excess, arrogant to sin with pride. Presumptuous is without sorrow or penitence. Ignorance or being overtaken has humility, sorrow, and penitence. You see, it's weakness, not strength. It is to sin because of being weak. Because of this distinction, trespasses are dealt with differently. Here in our text, Paul is talking about someone who is overtaking in a trespass, either due to weakness, deception, or ignorance. Also notice this is this is about restoring, not about stopping or restraining. This is about restoring someone who was overtaken in a trespass. Restoration is only reached when there is acknowledgement and admission of guilt, humility, sorrow, and repentance that is necessary for restoration. And the good news is that there is restoration when any of us, through weakness, deception or ignorance sins against any of the commandments of the lord first john chapter 5 this is the message which we have heard from him and declare unto you that god is light and in him is no darkness at all if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness we lie and do not practice the truth but if we walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship one with another and the blood of jesus christ his son cleanses us from all sin If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Therefore, our focus should be on reconciliation with ourselves and one another. We are first to be reconciled to God and to restore one another because this is love. This is bearing one another's burdens. In James chapter 5, verse 19, he writes, Brethren, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So if you're overtaken in a trespass, Don't get mad when you are rebuked, reproved, and exhorted. Be humble. Be sorrowful over your sin. Seek repentance. And then don't be upset in being restored for it's God's kindness. And it is the kindness of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And let us not avoid this work in reconciling one another. No, it is not comfortable. Conflict is never enjoyable unless you do not possess meekness and unless you are not constantly exercising self-examination in your own faith and sins. But it is necessary for the body. It is necessary for our salvation.